Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. I'm James Scotland. Welcome to today's episode of Supply Circles. I'm coming to you today from the Yungumbar language region in Surface Paradise. And I've got to say, thank you for listening. This podcast, we ask the question of supply chain professionals and thought leaders, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them, I say them every fortnight. Digitalization, decarbonisation and ongoing disruptions. Today, I'm keen to explore these issues through the eyes of a successful Australian business that is both an international seller and buyer uh, and a supplier and a buyer, a bit of everything. I'm keen to test my assumptions of the 3Ds with a supply chain and business operator. This is another episode in the series where I speak with a business owner or operator and after a raft of excellent guests as business owners, I'm honoured to have on the show today the impressive and always engaging Anthony Kittle, the Managing Director of a company called the Red Art Group. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, James. Let me introduce you to the listeners. It's kind of a nice read. For the past 26 years, Anthony has been the Chief Executive of Red Art Electronics. He's the Founder and Managing Director of Red Art Defence and Space, Founder and Chief Executive of Red Art Technology, Founder and President of Red Art Corporation of the, of the USA, and he is a director of Salentium Defense. As well, Anthony is a graduate of the Harvard Business School's owner president management group. Two years of his life uh, where he was pretty busy by the sound of it. He is graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, another fascinating course which I've enjoyed, and a fellow of the South Australian Governors Leadership Foundation. In April 2018, Anthony was conferred the degree of Doctor of the University Honoris Chorus at Flinders University. His honorary doctorate recognises his unrelenting focus on transformative workplace culture and new product development, something we're going to ask about. And it recognises his investment in the business leaders of tomorrow through mentorship, professional development and career guidance. And it goes on, that's not all. In April 22, Anthony was inducted into the Australian Automotive Aftermarkets Association Hall of Fame. In granting the award, Stuart Charity, the Chief Executive of the Association, said, Anthony is one of the true industry pioneers and his commitment to Australian manufacturing is inspiring. That's a CV and a half. I tell you what, Anthony, it sounds like you've had a busy 26 years. There's certainly no, no spare time there, James, that's for sure. But it's, it's been, a, been a fun ride so far. Tell us about Red Ark. What's the story? Uh, well, it's a, it's a, a good story. We're, we're over 40 years old, so uh, founded in 1979. A gentleman called Bob Mackey uh, was an electronics engineer, and he started tinkering with electronics in the back room of his house, um, as I say, in the late 70s, and uh, built a 24 to 12-volt voltage converter, um, but actually, before he did that, he was tinkering and built a, um, a product for his Porsche 911. And uh, I've lost the words there thinking what the, the product was called. <laughs> but um, the, the, first, uh, the first version of the product that he developed, uh, it wasn't generating enough heat and it had a red arc. And, and so uh, that's how he named the company Red Arc. Um, so, uh, but Bob then went on to develop these 24 of to 12-volt converters for the trucking industry, mm-hmm. uh, which are needed if you bring a European or Japanese truck into Australia, 24-volt electrical system, and the converter then will step it down so you can run a refrigerator or your lights or a radio on the trucks. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, that the Bob ran the company until the mid-'90s. Unfortunately, he, he became ill, uh, moved up to Queensland, was doing R&D up there, um, and the company was run under management. Um, and then both of those two managers still work for us today. Um, but uh, unfortunately, eventually he passed away due to his illness and uh, the company was put up for sale. And, and that's when myself and uh, my father-in-law decided to go into partnership and buy Red Ark back in 1997. Uh, Dennis, uh, my father-in-law, um, had a, to- a five-year time frame. And, um, yeah, we worked together for that five years to 
I guess, take a very small uh, handmade electronics business uh, in Lonsdale, South Australia from with eight employees and I guess look at how we could, um, you know, develop the business and, and grow the brand um, to start with in Australia. And uh, so those first few years, we, uh, we certainly had a few uh, issues to deal with. And number one was the fact that the founder was the innovator. And because he'd, he'd been out of the business for several years, we had to look at, you know, how we revamp the products and, and increase the technology because they were getting a little bit tired and warranties were increasing. Um, so, yeah, we, we worked hard on customer service. We worked hard on fixing the products. And I guess by about 2000, um, we'd grown from eight people to 10 people and we'd hit a million dollars in revenue. That was a, a big milestone. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, we're on, on our way. Um, from there, uh, I guess we uh, set about to write our first business plan. And uh, <laughs> I often... I often talk to lots of different uh, leadership and business groups and, you know, our, our first business plan and, and it's still a, a good way of business planning. It's a plan on a page, top line, where are we now? Middle line, where do we want to be? And the third line is how we're going to get there. Uh, and that one page business plan we, we put together in the year 2000 and it, the main goal, whilst there was a number of goals, but the main goal was to grow our business from 1 million to 5 million in 2005. And uh, through, you know, again, three or four bullet points under each of those headings, we hit 5 million and 20 revenue, 5 million and 20,000 in 2005. And uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's nice to have you know, something to aim for and, and have all your employees really focused on a, on a vision. Yeah. And the whole thing's been done uh, in South Australia, in Lonsdale, South Australia. You're still there now. We are. We are. So uh, I guess that company of, you know, eight employees and, 1997 is now 365 employees. Uh, we have about 140 engineers involved with R&D. Um, and so the company's totally transformed uh, over the years. And obviously now we're selling our products globally, um, but a much wider range of products. So we diversified from just selling into the trucking industry, into the four by four automotive industry. And obviously then uh, down the track, caravans, RVs, uh, and more subsequent years in defence and space. So, uh, so you have um, a products for the the general public now. It's not just business to business. It's also business to consumer. Yeah, that's right. So we have two main product streams. So the first one is um, is power management, and that's where we offer auxiliary power systems. And to a consumer, that's uh, I guess your auxiliary battery and and the solution to run your microwave and your induction cooktop and your coffee machine when you go camping. Um, to uh, a braking segment, which is our world-famous um, Topro brake controller, mm-hmm. which will uh, operate the brakes on your caravan, your boat, your trailer, your horse float, um, directly proportional to what's happening with the vehicle. So it works the whole car and trailer as a full system, uh, and we're able to have a very smart product that will guarantee that your, your car and your trailer brake um, seamlessly. I, uh, I would imagine that many of the people listening to this podcast will say, I didn't know they were made in Adelaide. That will just be, the Adelaide will be the surprise part to the story uh, because the, the product is recognised, isn't it? It's well known. It's accepted as it a is, leader. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often take people through the factory on tours and they're blown away by the fact that they say, first thing they say, wow, I didn't know this existed in Adelaide. And, um, and I guess, you know, it really came down to, a key decision um, back in about 2005, 2006 to invest in a state-of-the-art facility uh, and state-of-the-art um, surface mount loading technology to load the electronics onto the circuit boards at a time when most companies were outsourcing to low-cost uh, Southeast Asian company uh, countries. Hmm. So, um, you know, I sort of look back and think, you know, at the time that was a very risky decision to heavily invest in manufacturing here when uh, you know automotive was really suffering, and at the time Mitsubishi uh, engine plant had closed down, the Mitsubishi close uh, car plant was soon to close, um, and we uh, you know we put a plan to the federal government to say, look, we're going to invest. Would you back us? Because um, we'll create jobs in uh, the south of uh, of Adelaide. Um, and at the time, we were only thirty four employees, um, and so we've certainly met that commitment to you know to grow tenfold 
But that's the go, isn't it? That's the when uh, when people like me, you know, business consultants, talk to you, business operators. This idea of saying, go against the grain. If everyone else is closing down, think about you know going hard. Yeah, yeah look, absolutely. And I think I'm just super passionate about manufacturing, and and also understand our customers want high quality products. And so my concern about having a supply chain in a low cost country was. How do you guarantee that product quality? Mm. How do you guarantee that robustness that we need in the Australian market? And then as we found out with COVID, you know, a supply chain that's 16, 20, even 52 weeks long, uh, it's an impossible uh, task to try and run a factory when you have those sorts of lead times. So by having a really um, strong Australian and predominantly South Australian supply chain, we've been able to meet all of our customer needs. In fact, you know, one of our customers, a French motorhome builder, we'd supplied all through COVID just in time and never missed a delivery. Wow. Uh, and yet they had local suppliers that that uh, caused them interruptions. So, yeah, well, well, France was pretty tough. I mean, if, if his local suppliers were in France and they, they did have a hard lockdown. Um, they did, yeah. Melbourne, Melbourne people put their hand up and say, yeah, we had a hard lockdown too. But France was hard. It was short, but it was, it was intense. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The, the thing... Uh, about going back to building in Adelaide or building in Australia or buying from your Southeast Asian suppliers is the the products that you're building have to withstand the Australian conditions. And I, I uh, you know, um, I met you first through the Volvo truck uh, group when I was doing some work with them. And they, they, they've got to build trucks in Australia that have conditions totally different from everywhere else in the world. And people who tow caravans have to, want to go into where it's tough. Is that been fundamental to the way that you've developed your products? When you say you're just sort of worried about customer needs, are you thinking about how hard it is or are you thinking more about what, what they might want around? I don't know. What are you thinking about? Uh, look, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, about designing a product for a Volvo truck. I mean, effectively, we've got the harshest road conditions in the world and some of the most extreme environments. So, We've learned, I guess, through that relationship with the truck manufacturers where we started, you know, where, where the company was born, um, you know, we've got the most exacting standards that we've got to meet and test to. Mm-hmm. So through that, I guess, through that knowledge, our engineers are able to build a product for a caravan to survive the Simpson Desert or a trip to Cape York or the Canning Stock Route. So And then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we... I guess we've really heavily invested in the test equipment to simulate those environments, both from temperature, vibration, um, electromagnetic noise, uh, these sorts of areas that it's quite unique. In fact, our, you know, I've been told our test labs are probably, you know, one of the best in the Southern Hemisphere. So uh, we haven't been afraid to to back back ourselves and, and go hard. I want to talk about R&D because there's an interesting part that will lead us on to, to supply, but... Uh... Thinking back to that first business plan when you wanted to go from one million to five million, was that based around we're going to go aggressively into new markets, or was that based around we're going to you know build, create new products? Is is it, is it sort of product driven or market driven, or something else? Uh, look, it was uh, it was both, and I clearly remember at the time in two thousand we had one major customer, and that was Volvo Truck, and I. You know, one of the key points we wrote was that we wanted every truck manufacturer or truck company, truck brand in Australia to be using our product. And by 2005, we'd achieved that. So, you know, we're supplying then to the factory at Iveco, we're supplying to Kenworth, um, to Scania, uh, all the different brands in the market. So that's with the same product. So same product, same market, basically, but just... Same product, same market. Yeah, okay. And? But then in 2002, we... I guess, doubled down and we said we're going to set up this company called Red Arc Technologies and we're going to start to hire engineers and make a strategic commitment to R&D. And so at the time, the research we did was that I think the best companies were investing about 7.5% of their revenue in R&D. Most Australian companies were lucky to be 2.5% of of sales back into R&D. So we thought if we could do double the best, and aim for 15 cents in every dollar back into R&D and generate, I guess, a broad range of new products for our customers, then uh, we could be the best. And so we started doing that in 2002. We hired hired our first design engineer. Mm -hmm. And that team, as I mentioned, is, you know, over 100 
engineers today. So, wow. and and we're I guess through that we're able to you know continually come out with new product for both the RV market, the the four by four market, the American overlanding market, the trucking market, the mining industry, and and now the defence industry. Mm-hmm. Um, is it tough to set up an R and D? I mean, I imagine you've got some federal government funding, but you've got to invest before you get retained, surely. Yeah. Look, um, I guess what we aim is one of our KPIs around R and D investment is what percentage of our revenues is received from products that we've developed in the last eighteen months. Okay. And I, I mentioned the word. I mentioned the number eighteen because. Five years ago, our R&D was measured by what percentage of our revenues generated by investment in the last three years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the world's moving so fast now yeah. that, that we say, well, if you're not achieving an R&D out, outcome within 18 months, you, it's not a good investment. So, yeah, we're, we really push ourselves hard to um, benchmark against the best and know that every dollar we're putting into R&D, our engineers are creating great product. and. And that really starts with the process. The whole commercialization process is a very, it's a very well documented and well practiced uh, process in Red Arc, and it starts with the customer. It starts with our product category management team and coming up with their ideas, testing it in the market, documenting customer specification, and then passing it to our systems engineering team to write an engineering specification. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's an investment case yeah. and the, an investment committee. Um, but it, it's a generally it's about a, an eight stage process that we go through to commercialize a new product. How does that connect with um, current dormant capacity? Uh, you know, uh, are you running at one hundred percent? And when you get a new product, you have to find some new capacity. Is it is capacity kept in mind when you're thinking about your investment decisions, or are you really looking at the market and saying we'll worry about the the second part of supply later on? At, I think one of the gates as part of your product development process is to think about the capacity and not only that, to think about, you know, where we're, ne- we're never going to be the lowest cost producer. So I guess we've got to create great value for money and great quality and great customer satisfaction um, because we know we're not the cheapest. So, you know, we have to look at that whole manufacturing process and say, how are we going to make this product at, at you know, to create great value for our customer? which means we really need to think about the manufacturing process at the same time we're designing the product. And so we've got a team of engineers uh, called manufacturing engineers, Mm -hmm. and their role is to work with the design engineers and look at what automation and what systems do we need to put in place and what capacity do we need to be able to create that product. So, you know, we're about to launch a a whole new range of products in this next six-month period. And as our engineers are getting the prototype products ready, our manufacturing engineers are getting the prototype manufacturing uh, automation equipment ready to go. And, and therefore, the two come together when we do what we call a pre-production run. Mm-hmm. We're able to test test the machines. We're also able to test the product design. Uh, and that's an exciting time. Is this standard thinking? Is it the way it normally works around the world when with companies that are constantly looking for new products to push out because they say, well, we can't stay with old products. We, we won't survive. Do they have that set up of the design and, and the manufacturing working together hand in hand or does one normally lead? Uh, look, I'd say best practice is that they, they have to work hand in hand and um, those engineers need to work closer together to be able to plan that out. And, um, you know, again, when it comes back to your investment case, obviously you're, you're making that investment based on a certain volume uh, product that you want to you want to re- resell and, and achieve your outcomes. So, you know, you know up front, as long as you're doing, you've got really good market intelligence and you're, you know, the front end of the business is is giving the right numbers. Mm. It's it's a pretty good guide to how you're going to go about manufacturing the product, what suppliers you need to work with you closely, you know, um, all the different things that come together to to make a finished product from us down to a simple thing, which is still a very complex item and that's product packaging. Um, you know, all of that needs to be thought of and, and at various stages throughout the product development process. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk to a product packaging expert shortly on the on the, on the podcast uh, and hear about how that's it is, changing. It's such a skill and particularly now around sustainability mm. and, um, mm. you know, we're, we're big on trying to remove plastics, uh, eliminate plastics from our plant and, um, 
yeah, so product packaging and design is is a very critical area today. Yeah, there's also this point of uh, inbuilt obsolescence uh, being you know kind of wasteful, but also makes sense because you've got got new designs coming through all the time. Uh, there's a, there's a lot to it, and I agree. And uh, the other part of that is always complex is when you want to sell in multiple markets around the globe, and you have multiple languages, you have multiple standards. Do you have to do a unique package for every every uh, country you sell to, or you know, do you look at how you can uh, have a more uniform design that will will carry into every market? Um, so you know, when you un- unbox your iPhone and have a look at all the different documentation and the different standards, uh, I think that's a that's a, a a great example of of how to do packaging very well. It actually is a great example uh, because I did some work in in Asia where we looked at. All the different markets in a very small part of Southeast Asia. You know, they're all different languages and different religions and different, you know, trigger points, uh, different physiology. Um, and it's hard to get a, a common standard packaging across all of that. Um, and they use it for different reasons. I mean, uh, Apple's have got the advantage that they all use it for the same reasons, but uh, your, your yes. product would be used differently and it's pretty tricky. How did um, I imagine them? My young boy from Adelaide ended up running an international business, apart from the fact your father-in-law helped you, <laughs> carried you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, look, I've, I, effectively, I grew up in the bush. So I grew up in Port Augusta and uh, you're a, studied. You're a boy uh, from Port Augusta uh, that runs an international yeah. business. Man, that's a good story. So, uh, no, I studied uh, mechanical engineering and uh, my family couldn't afford to send me to university. So I managed to pick up a cadetship with BHP at the steelworks oh, in Wahala. Wow. <laughs> and so I did my uh, uh, five-year engineering degree, which I really enjoyed because it it was uh, working on the job as well as studying. And so you got to, in my first year, I did six months in the apprentice training shop, fitting and turning, and then six months in the boilermaking mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my projects, I always remember, them, and I'm proud of the fact I could turn a tow ball on a, on a manual lathe, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. is a... You know, a, a skill that doesn't really exist anymore. It's all computer controlled. Yeah. Um, but that it was a great training ground for me because I learned at BHP that as a leader and as an engineer, that if you wanted to create a great outcome, you need to involve the team. And so I would walk to the the production line where we made the the steel, and um, here's a drawing or here's an idea, and talk to the get the production team around and say, look. Here's something that I'm thinking about. What do you guys think? And um, the great thing about that is it it transforms from being your idea to our idea. Yeah. And yeah, suddenly yeah. you've got a team that embraces it. They give you feedback. You take that feedback on board. And when you want to implement that design, the team's all out 100% in support of you. And, I, I, you know, I guess you learn the hard way. So if the first time is a young engineer, he knows best uh, to suddenly, okay, now I get it. I need, I need to embrace get asked for feedback ask for help uh get team involvement and i carry that through to red arc today you know our our shop floor staff uh, have really good ideas because they're the ones building making the product every day um you know we really i really make sure that um we're chatting with them and getting their feedback on how to continuously improve and get better um but yeah coming back to the question how did i get to red arc well i worked my time at bhp uh, I did an MBA full-time at Adelaide Uni when I decided that um, as I think it was about 24, 25, that whilst I loved engineering, I was really wanted to get into business management. Uh, post that uh, course at Adelaide Uni, I worked at a company called ROH, which is uh, aluminium and, and steel wheel. Mag wheels? Yeah, mag wheels. Mag wheels. That's an old term now, I guess. <laughs> it is, yeah. But I started as um, project engineer, then I was manufacturing manager, then I was general manager all within three years. Are there um, any guys that have the like the Roadrunner or the Emu or something on wheels? Is that is that the Yeah, so they've got a that's right, they've got a brand uh, Cheviot wheels, um, which is I think the the Roadrunner on wheels, um, the Cheviot brand, which was is uh, somewhere north in Adelaide here, there's a, a ship called Cheviot Road. Um, and uh, ROH bought that um, bought that company and and we had yeah, the ROH brand and the Cheviot brand and um, you know, I used to have a set of mags on my car. Memories of my old uh, uh, surfy panel van with mag wheels That's on it. it. Yeah, yeah. That's Come it. On. Thanks, Anthony. They were good wheels. And then just quickly from there, um, uh, I guess I was about 30, 
early 30s and um, uh, chatting with uh, Michelle's dad, my, my wife's dad, and at a family barbecue and chatting about, you know, where I wanted to go and what he what he enjoyed. And that's when we decided, you know, I was 32 and decided to buy a small business. And um, we looked around at lots of different companies, I think about 48 companies, and we went to visit five of them and couldn't really find exactly what we we're looking for. But thankfully, one of the business brokers that, uh, that we were working with said, look, I haven't got anything right now, but if you're prepared to give me a few months, there's a company that's coming on the market that I think um, – would, would meet your expectations Tommy. in terms of, you know, the things that we were looking for. And that company was Red Arc. And uh, I guess, um, you know, whilst we knew nothing about electronics, we thought, well, I, I knew manufacturing, Dennis knew small business. So I thought it can't be that hard. But uh, we sort of had a bit of a baptism of fire the first year, that was for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shout out to my friend Richard, who is a civil engineer who did an MBA, and I've been telling him, for years that the most dangerous thing in the world is to give an engineer an MBA. Then you've got, <laughs> I think they can cover, conquer the world. Um, Look, I think it's a great skill set for an engineer because whilst we're, you know, we should be good technically, we don't really have those sales, marketing and human resource skills. So I found it just really added um, that extra area of information, which I was then able to go and practice and learn and and, and, and hone my skill. Yeah, it adds the uh, the warmer or the softer part of the business uh, to your skill set of very analytical and very precise. Um, Absolutely. Two questions I like to ask people who come on the show is, is um, what keeps you up at night, but what gets you out of bed in the morning? And after 26 years of doing this, there must be some new challenges. Is it still the same or have you found some new excitement or or are you bored? <laughs> never never a dull moment at Red Oak where <laughs> – there's always something happening, and uh, I actually just had three months uh, holiday. Uh, first time I've had a, a, a really good break, wow. and and I just when I came back, the first thing I noticed was the amount of change that I've seen at Red Arc in the three months I've been gone, which is which is something that we we embrace. Mm. And um, mm. you know, we have a saying that if you're not if you're not uh, not cha- if you're not changing every day, you're standing still, and eventually the competition will will move past you. But um, I guess what keeps me awake at night these days is is how we take Red Oak from a Australian business to a global business and, you know, our expansion in the United States and our expansion into Europe, um, the challenges involved in, I guess, growing a company internationally and, and um, you know, setting up uh, offices and hiring staff and just growing your brand globally and being able to satisfy the customer. So you still think that growth, growth is still fundamental to the Red Oak story? Absolutely. I think, yeah. To me, uh, if I if I don't see growth, then I'll get bored really easily. So mm-hmm. uh, I just love the fact that we're able to create these new products and create the growth. What it does actually for the company is it creates so many opportunities for our employees. So they, by growing you, you suddenly you know people are able to develop, uh, hone their skills, and then you know step up through the company. And you know I've got numerous examples of people that have joined us as as a young 18-year-old from high school or as a undergraduate engineer and they've they've stayed with us with us you know more than 20 years and the the you know senior managers in the company wow. today so yeah. without that growth you can't create those opportunities mm. so um, I think that's pretty important and then um, you know what what gets me out of bed every day is I just love talking to customers and love working with customers and seeing how we, I guess, how we've made a difference in their lives. Um, you know, and we, we're always getting uh, feedback from customers about the fact that, um, you know, how, I guess, how our products have enabled them to achieve their goals, whether that be a, a really great camping trip uh, in the Simpson mm-hmm. or uh, the fact that, you know, I had an email where, I guess, an elderly couple were driving their vehicle along a along the line, an iron ore train up in the northwest of WA, and they they were coming up towards the crossing and they felt they had sufficient time to, to cross in front of the iron ore train. Uh-huh. But before they knew it, the, the train was almost on them mm-hmm. and they hit the hit the brakes uh, and they wrote me a letter just to say how what a wonderful product our, mm. our Topro brake mm-hmm. controller is because it in their in their words it saved their life. Yeah, yeah. It's just not a product, is it? It's uh, it's part That's of right. part of Australian life. Yeah, good on you. Well, yeah. Then. Yeah. Well, then. Um the as a CEO, one of the big or the chair president, whichever all those different roles, there is uh, a lot of 
pressure on you in the digital age to make sure that uh, not only are you, you you reacting to the digital requirements of the of the marketplace, selling them online and whatever, but also that you're protecting your business and your clients and your mm. and your staff. Is is that an ongoing? Is that number one on your on your list? You know, the cybersecurity or or what? Uh, look, it's if it's not number one, it's certainly really really close to number one. Um, you know, we've invested heavily in cybersecurity, um, obviously because we're a defence business as well. So that's really, I guess, pulled us from a SME into the area where we need to be, you know, yeah. paying a lot of attention and, um, and investing to make sure that we're up to the, the latest technology uh, in terms of, um, you know, a, a, a connected uh, products and connected factory. We invest a lot in uh, the, the digital digitalization of our factory so that we're getting real-time information. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, e-commerce and working directly with our customers is, is growing all the time. Um, now we have artificial intelligence, and I guess how can we how can we utilize that to again offer really great customer service um, by, I guess you know if there's a, a customer rings with a particular problem, how we can use artificial intelligence to mine all the knowledge that we've got and be able to provide a you know a, a really factual intelligent answer. Um, it's moving really really fast, and uh, as much as it's a challenge, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thesis of this podcast is that we're, the way to build uh, resilient and sustainable supply chains is through digitalization and also accepting decarbonisation and ongoing disruptions are going to be part of your business. I'm, I want to talk to you about how you act as a supplier. You've sort of painted a good picture of, of the markets that you're, that you're chasing, the products and whatever. Um, so we'll take a break and come back and talk about that. I noticed you said that uh, the business was started in 1979, uh, a long time ago. And for someone my age, that doesn't always rings weird, but that's a long time ago. And I saw uh, a thing the other day that said, if Back to the Future was made today, um, what's his name? I forget his name. The, the fellow in Back to the Future would go back to 1990. <laughs> and, the, okay. and the mother that he was trying to rescue back in 1990 is the equivalent of, uh, Julia Robertson, pretty woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Back to the Fifties, like in Back, in back to the Future. Yeah. It was it was nineteen ninety. It ages us all, doesn't it? Yeah. Let's come back in a few minutes and talk about supply. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Anthony, um, the business is is now an international business uh, and you have uh, many markets, some of which are business to business, some of which, as you said, are business to consumer. Uh, I know that you deal with big manufacturers such as Volvo and Trucks, and you said before that you're in the defence industry, so you have prime contractors uh, uh, as your buyers. That means uh, that you have to be a good supplier. Well, how do you be a good supplier? It's a complex question, but I guess to, to sort of chunk it down into bite-sized pieces, I guess the first one is you need to understand your customer and, and really understand what, what they need to be to create a great product, so because they are different, aren't they? I mean, defence is different from the manufacturing business, which is different from retail. Absolutely, you know, with uh, you know, certainly with defence, uh, it's it's not just about the product; it's all of the documentation and the supporting data that you need to supply. Um, if you know, if you didn't understand that customer, you give them the product and say, "There you go," and end of story. But that's only the beginning of the story. So, really understand the customer. I think understand what their what their uh, quality needs are is always a big thing, and you know we we we're always going through quality audits from our from our customers, which we're really proud to do because we get the chance to show off our facilities and and all the testing and the certifications that we have. Um, I think you know at the end of the day, it's about delivery in full and on time. Uh, we're and again by having an Australian manufacturing plant. Uh, with a strong supply base, we're able to we're able to meet that those requirements. And I mentioned about you know the the French motorhome company 
um, and particularly supplying the automotive industry and, and defence. We've got to meet the deadlines that, that are needed. Um, so is that a major uh, KPI of yours, this delivery in Absolutely. Yeah, DIFOT is a uh, is a big uh, a big measure of ours to to customer satisfaction. Because when you talk to the bigger customers like Bolo, and you talk to uh, I was to some defence people, of course, uh, over the last few weeks, they say if you're going to be a supplier to us, you have to supply metrics. You have to tell us that you can do what you do, one quality and two delivery. Is that the, yep. is that your lived experience? Absolutely. Um, you know, when we go to the US, that uh, you know the the first thing they ask you is. Can you meet our capacity? Okay. You know, how much capacity have you got? Uh-huh. Can you supply us on time? How, how are you going to supply from the other side of the world? And, you know, so we've set up um, uh, warehouses in specific countries to be able to service the market. So in in uh, Europe, we, we service the market out of a warehouse in Poland. In the US, we service out of a warehouse in North Carolina. So you, you've got to be prepared to make that investment to be a good supplier. Um, you can't just say, well, we've got a great product, end, end of story. Yep. So uh, I guess that comes back to understanding their needs. And, you know, we met with one of the large uh, automotive manufacturers in, in Detroit recently. And, yeah, the first thing they wanted to know was, well, how can you get an engineer to our line? How, where's the product going to be stored? So there's a whole bunch of questions that you could tell for them was important if, if you wanted to win a supply contract with them. So The the, uh, the American automotive industry for many years was based around just-in-time, absolute yes. minute just-in-time. There was a, you know, a popular story that uh, Ford or someone, if something, if a factory broke down in, in the Midwest, the California factory would close two hours later. I mean, I think it's a, you know, popular, but it's the idea of... Sure. Are they still yeah. are they still fully committed to just in time? Because we've moved away from it a little bit down here on the island at the end of the earth, where we've had to build a bit more, you know, fat into our capacity, into our operations. Uh, look, I think it's fair to say you've got to build a bit of fat into your operations to to ensure you can supply just in time. But I guess the the large businesses don't want to carry that fat; they expect the suppliers to to manage that for them. Mm-hmm. And that's I guess that's a measure of being a good supplier is that you're able to work to their schedule adjustments and still meet your deliveries, right. um, you know, with your forecasting and, and working, having that communication with your customers to know when the schedule changes or how do you react, how quickly can you support them. So, again, if you're on the other side of the world, how do you do that when, uh, you know, when you're meeting a delivery uh, lead time in a factory in Detroit? So, again, by having that warehouse as a buffer just helps you manage that. Does that mean that you don't go to them as the lowest Cost option, because you have to carry that, um, that fat. You have to be, you, you say, you know, we'll get die fight, but you won't get cheap. You know? uh, look, I think at the end of the day, they're the customer, so you, you know, you meet their expectations, and uh, you know, again, if if you can't make their, you can't meet their measures, then it's best not to supply because it's only a, it's a death spiral if you're going to start yeah. being a low cost provider and absorbing all those costs. Mm. So, of, of course, you need to. Um, have a relationship where you can work closely together and understand what costs you're absorbing on their behalf, but you still need to meet their requirements. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your suppliers, how you act as a bit, as a buyer. We were saying on this show that uh, someone came up with it in one of the earlier episodes, bad buyers get fired. Um, in other words, yep. if you do want everything, you know, I want the highest quality, I want the, I want the on time, I want it low price, I want to change my demands all the time. <laughs> Eventually, the suppliers say, "No, bugger that, I'm going somewhere else." You know, I've got, I don't need that headache. Do you yeah. have, do you take that approach to your suppliers and say, "Yeah, you know, we're going to build good relationships"? What's the story? Yeah, uh, look, I I treat our, uh, I guess, I treat our suppliers as partners, and I treat them as personal friends. So. Many of our suppliers we've had for more than 20 years. Um, and the reason being is that they've grown as we've grown, they've grown and nice. they understand our business mm-hmm. and the loyalty that you build by showing that loyalty, you get back in spades. So it, I think it's, you know, for us, um, I have companies wanting to win business from us and I say, well, look, we already, we already have a, a partner who supplies us that particular um, sort of plastic or uh, that aluminium extrusion or whatever it might be um and i don't mean to be rude to the to the people trying to win our business but to me the relationship is more important uh than taking the lowest cost so so we're 
you know, whilst we we absolutely need to be competitive, and you share you share that with with again with your partner if you've got a really good relationship, you say, look, these are the pressures we're under, and we've we shared, you know, we've had to share that um, in more recent times as uh, material costs have been ballooning. Um, you know, you got to work together because ultimately, if you if your supplier fails, then you'll fail. Mm. So, you know, again, if no point sending your supplier broke. Um, because you, you know it takes a long time for them to understand how you work, what sort of quality levels you need, you're just in time, whether it's Kanban, all the different systems that you've got. So yeah, I'm a big one in, in being loyal to your suppliers and having it be, by all means, have a frank conversation, uh, a robust conversation, but at the end of the day, we're, we work together. How do you go about finding suppliers around the around the world? Because you've got suppliers from other parts of the world. Uh, do you have people wandering the world all the time looking looking for the latest? We do. Uh, we've built a really strong supply chain team here at Red Arc, and uh, Richard Burley uh, heads up that team. And you know he's got global purchasing experience, and so you know we, we certainly hired people that um, you know have again have that global purchasing experience as well. So. Um, you know, they they do scour the world for supplies, um, depending on what we need. And as we as we get more innovative, um, we do need to look at um, you know uh, different supplies. Um, I think also, obviously, the Australian industry was somewhat decimated when the automotive industry shut down. And um, you know, there's a lot of sheet metal, plastics, other areas that um, that we've lost in Australia. But thankfully, there's still some some good companies around that we can use. Um, yeah, so mm, mm. look, it's, I guess, uh, depends. It's horses for courses, depending on what you need and where where you're supplying, you know, whether we're supplying in the United States and do we need a partner there to work with us because it doesn't make sense to ship a particular a fully finished product there. Or we might, you know, use a local supplier and, and put the final assembly mm. uh, in the country where it's being used. Mm. Mm. Um, what are the decarbonisations, the other D? Um, your business will need to be decarbonised by 2050. That's just the rules. Uh, but that's in yes. Australia, around the world, with various uh, changes. America's got North Carolina, I think, is on a decarbonised path. Um, how much of, How much is that taking up of your management's mental space? Um, it, it's a – well, we have a key person with that responsibility in Red Arc and um, – uh, we also employ a sustainability engineer. Uh, we've got an environmental um, sustainability team uh, of of employees that that cover that subject off on a monthly basis. At the moment, forty eight percent of our total energy comes from renewable energy. Because um, Adelaide's quite advanced in that. I mean, it's going to give you an advantage because Adelaide's quite advanced in their it, renewable. It does. So, you know, we don't have a square centimetre left on our roof. Uh, our building is. Um, <laughs> I think about three thousand six hundred square meters, and every every element of the roof is covered with solar panels. Wow. Uh, we've got um, significant uh, battery storage capacity. Um, as I say, forty eight percent of the total energy consumption is now from um, from solar, um, but we'll be uh, net zero by twenty twenty five. So we've got a, a really solid plan on on ESG, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, achieving that goal. Twenty twenty five. That's not an aggressive. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah, so we're we're doing really well. It seems to me the, the thing that keeps coming back to me from what you're saying is that you've got staff members that have been with you for a long time. You've got clients. Yes. Volvo has been with you since the 70s. Uh, you've got suppliers that have been with you for more than 20 years. And so you're very stable, yes. very loyal business, but at the same time, constant growth, new innovation, changing, accepting the requirements that need to change your business totally. So it's this sort of innovative company with a with a traditional base, which yes. makes me ask you about your leadership, your personal leadership. What, what are your thing? What, what? How do you define your leadership? Well, I notice that you're a you know a fellow of the SA Governor's leadership. Um, so you must have thought about your leadership. How, how do you do it? How do you maintain this consistency but still be innovative with people all around you? Yeah. So obviously, uh, we work really hard on our culture, and there's a number of key elements that make up the culture and. And obviously, if we're going to be an innovative company, we need to be prepared to take risks. And um, if if you want a culture that takes takes risks, you need to make sure that you empower your employees and allow them to make make decisions and make 
and make mistakes and learn from that. Um, I think we're really, really big on teamwork, um, uh, really big on, on, on care and attention uh, and, and looking after our staff. And that's, that, I guess, that uh, I'm really passionate about that, knowing all of our employee names. And, you know, it's a, we're, we are a family business, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're a 350 person, three it's a big, family it's business. It's a big family, yeah. It's, okay. it's a big family. Um, and I think, uh, like I said about uh, uh, having growth ambitions, is that we've got to be willing to accept change because if you're not if you're not changing every day, and I have this saying that we've got to change one percent every day because by the end of the year that's real innovation. Um, so what are the things? What's every employee doing today differently than what they did yesterday? Mm-hmm. And if we could all do one little thing different, then Ultimately, you add all that together, and it, it, it's amazing the amount of change that you can achieve. So, I think having a, a willingness to embrace that and a culture where people actually look forward to that um, is, you know, we've had that from the beginning and we still have it today. Uh, we work really hard on our recruitment. I think that helps us create that culture. Mm-hmm. So, we have a multiple step recruitment process where those eight employees that we originally started with back in 19. 19- 97 when I bought the company, um, two have passed on, one's retired. So we've still got five in the business. They play an active role in our recruitment process. So one of our ah, interviews. That's the old, that's the, like the Marine Corps idea of you get your yeah. best Marines to go and find the new recruits, yeah. Yeah, so one of our uh, interviews is a cultural interview and we'll always get one of those employees to sit in on that interview and I guess, you know, ask questions and gain knowledge about that employee and whether they'd be suitable to, to fit with our culture. And that takes time. We, you know, we, we would never hire off one interview. There's always a minimum of three interviews and it always takes several weeks. They get it right at the beginning because it'll come back to bite you if you don't. Yeah. You know, it only takes one bad apple to, uh, uh, you know, to, to cause problems. So I'd sort of regard the business as a club. And if, you know, if, if you're running a social club or a sporting club, you don't need a member that's going to cause you trouble. So we, we have that same philosophy around Red Oak. And so we pay a lot of attention to that recruitment. And I think it's a two-way street. It's not just about us selecting the employee. It's about the employees selecting us. So by meeting, you know, they meet a minimum of six people through that process and they get a really good understanding of, of who we are and what we stand for. And they can get, they can ask, you know, there's their fellow colleagues will interview them. So they get to be able to ask, the sorts of questions in an interview that you don't want to ask the manager. Um, you know, yeah. like how does what's it like around here? How, it, how do you enjoy yeah. working here? How does it really? How does it really work around here, rather than rather That's than right. speech, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, those sorts of things. I think we we really work hard on. Um, I, think, I think it's really I think it's really true because you know, I my management philosophy when I was running businesses was if if someone comes to work for me and they doesn't they don't really fit. Um, yeah. And they don't really like it. It's not really fulfilling for them. If they stay with me for three years, I've wasted three years of their life. I've wasted three years of their twenty-year career. It's not fair on them as well as me. It's up to me to make sure that I get the right people um, because it's yeah. like unfair. Yeah, one thing. One thing we do around that is, um, uh, you know, I think if we're going to have a world-class company, we've got to have world-class people because, like I mentioned, we can't compete on cost. So we've got to compete on, you know, knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. So uh, my my engineering degree and my MBA were funded by BHP. And what we do here is if any employee wants to do any personal development, whether that be an apprenticeship, whether it be a, a degree or a master's or even a PhD, uh, we fully fund all of that um, because, again, we want to create great employees and, and it gets paid back to us in spades and in loyalty. Do you think... Um- I'm just heading towards the end. Do you think Australia is doing enough of that? Uh, you know, the, the general feeling is that we're not developing people. Uh, I think there's no doubt at the moment the skill shortage we've got is is dire and uh, investment in people is is critical and, you know, particularly our younger people and, you know, having them uh, embrace uh, maths and science more uh, at school and giving them pathways, not necessarily just to university but into technical colleges and, and areas where they can hone their skills if they're good with their hands. Uh, I guess my question was, do you think it should be uh, it's best done via the employer type arrangement or is, are you doing that only because 
You have to. Uh, no, I think it's both. I think the employer has got to take responsibility. And I, you know, again, come back to the old days of uh, traineeships where I, what I did, where the company funded my uh, development. Um, obviously, the government can support that, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. I think there's, it's got to be a two-way street. So yeah. it needs both government and company investment. This is a, a great story. It's a wonderful example of uh, <laughs> the mouse that roared, the little the little business in Adelaide that uh, that became a global success. It's been great to hear your story. Uh, all through this conversation, I've been re- reminded of a, I was saying that I, I said back in my management career, which was if, if you run your business today like you ran it yesterday, you'll be out of business tomorrow. Uh, this idea yes. of, of, of con- constant evolution, constant occasional revolution, but constant evolution into the next the next phase. Thank you, James. It's, it's a great story. Uh, the, the idea of such loyal customers and loyal staff and, and loyal suppliers helping you launch onto the world and, and stay there by being innovation. It's a wonderful story. Thank you for, for your time. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, what do you got happening in the next 12 months? Uh, are you going to start taking longer holidays or are you going to be back cracking the whip? No, I've uh, I've had my nice break. I'm rejuvenated, and uh, yeah, I'm about to head to London and then to uh, United States, and it yeah, very much um, on that helping support that growth phase. So no, we're we're uh, yeah, full steam ahead. Good on you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, wish you all the best. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and thanks for your feedback uh, that I get each week uh, and each fortnight. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, if you have any uh, feedback on today's interview with Anthony Kittle or ideas of the show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland with one T, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now. Bye for now.